0: 13 verses 19 and 20 we're looking at defeated in the day of battle a secondary subject why we fight Uh, now there was no smith found throughout all the land of israel for the philistines said lest the hebrews make them swords or spears but all the israelites went down to the philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock the uh Background for this text has to do with a gentleman by the name of Saul. Now, there's a lot we can learn from him. There are a lot of reasons that people lose battles. <clears throat> One reason people lose wars and battles is because people are lacking in courage, faint at heart, as Scripture says. Sometimes people... They lose battles because they lack the tools and the resources they need to win. If you go back and look at our history, the revolution that was fought, there were battles that people fought where the soldiers didn't even have shoes to wear. Trudging through the snow, they left trails of blood because their feet had been exposed. Nevertheless, in the end, this great republic was born. Another reason people lose battles is because of the absence of leadership. Wrong kind of leader, and you can't win anything because people don't feel motivated to follow him or her. The way it operates in a home is if a mom and dad or a husband and wife uh, don't live up to their responsibilities, according to Scripture, then very often everybody else suffers. It has to deal with the problems that come from that. So leadership is absolutely essential, and the Bible talks about integrity. Integrity meaning that something is integrated, something is whole, and a person who has integrity, honorable, honest individual, very often these people make wonderful leaders because the best leaders usually were good followers. They were teachable, they could learn, they could listen, and then they would be able to communicate that to other people later on. Since the adversary understands that we are about the only opposition that he has in this world, then we have to know that as Christians, resisting the adversary is what we do. James chapter 4 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So you have to have some idea who the devil is, some idea of what he does, what he believes, and the kinds of things that he propagates and promotes in order for you to be some kind of force of resistance against that. But it's in the nature of Christians to be opposed to what is wrong. Exodus 15 verse 3 says, the Lord is a man of war. Now We know God is holy. We know God is love. We know God is faithful, that God is just. But who thinks about the fact that God is a man of war, that he has a warrior nature? The scripture says for us that are believers that We are born of an incorruptible seed, and of course that seed or that nature comes from God, so there's something inside of us that desires to resist evil. In fact, the ladies in Exodus chapter 15 were singing this song about Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And they were singing about the Lord being a man of war. So even in our praise and in our song service, we should make sure that we sing about the qualities and characteristics of God that make him stronger than our enemies and stronger than any kind of mountain that we have to deal with. The Bible teaches us that Satan is the God of this world. All of the cultures on this earth and more than 200 different nations, and there's hardly a nation you can go into where you won't find a Christian, but you'll find hundreds and thousands of cultures that don't accept Christ as the Savior. There's no doubt about it. And in Second Corinthians 4 and 4 says that Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of people so that they will not know the truth. So you wonder sometimes, why is it that some people accept the truth and other people don't? They're blind to it. Why is it that people reject Jesus or reject the Bible as the authoritative thing in our life that governs our action, our speech and how we conduct ourselves? It's because they're blinded by the God of this world. And Satan's fairly good at what he does. That's why so many people don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible also teaches that as Christians in this earth, we are here to promote the kingdom of God, to promote the nature of Christ, to be Christian. Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof and they that dwell therein. So even though Satan is the God of this world, the culture, what's going on outside the kingdom of God, ultimately, God is in charge of all of planet Earth. and We should do everything we can to preach the gospel and promote the kingdom of God in the middle of all of this. Well, there's some basic lessons then we can learn from this gentleman by the name of Saul. And I want to give you. A few of these. Saul became king because the children of Israel wanted to be like the other nations. And whenever people want to reject the rule of God in order to be like other countries, then inevitably you're going to get what other countries have. I get nervous whenever I hear people talk about how America needs to have to have the constitution that they have in South Africa. or we need to adapt ourselves according to the cultures over in Europe. Why do we need to do that? What we need to do is simply find out what the scripture says about how we should live individually and then as a Christian conduct ourselves accordingly. So what do we learn about Saul? Saul was a leader who refused to obey God and according to chapter 13 verse 8, he had been waiting for Samuel to come and it says he waited seven days and Samuel did not come so in verse Number eight, the people were scattered from him. And in verse nine, Saul said, bring the burnt offering to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Samuel was a judge. He was a prophet. And he was a leader. The one thing that Saul was not was a priest. But he was under the impression that because the Philistines were so strong and they were oppressing the people and robbing them of their wealth, and of all of their resources, he thought, well, the people are running away from me, so I need to make a decision, and to show I'm a strong leader, I'm going to take over this role and act like I'm the priest. Fear will make you do strange things. But the one thing fear should not ever cause you to do is to intrude into someone else's office. Saul was not a priest. He was not a prophet. He was a king. Once you move over into someone else's office, you put yourself in a bad way with God. And we see this oftentimes in churches and around the world. You can't take somebody else's position. Uh, you that have young people or children, if your kids went down the road and there were some neighbors who didn't like the way you were parenting your kid and then that father decided he was going to act like he was the father of your son and then tell you that just forget what your natural biological dad has told you I'm going to be your dad you know how angry that would make you some bad things would probably come out of that in some kind of a discussion or in some uh, speech with that that person but but Saul tried to become something that he wasn't he tried to be a preacher he tried to be a priest And he ended up in trouble, trouble on on account of that, because whenever we move into a position we're not supposed to be in, then a man of God comes on the scene and starts asking us questions about why we did it. Now There are hundreds of people, I'm sure, that are in pulpits that probably shouldn't be in pulpits and God alone knows who they are, but it, it, it will only it will take a man of God to speak to them about that. A lot of people who say, well, look, anybody can teach, anybody can preach. Well, that may be true, but if God hadn't called somebody to do it, then it's best, best that they leave it alone. You see, Sometimes we can do more damage than we can good. Uh, James even said everybody shouldn't have a desire to be a teacher because they're going to be judged with the greater judgment. The, the man or woman that stands in front of people and talks to them about God puts themselves in a position where people are probably going to listen to what they're saying and follow some of the things that they're teaching. But if what someone is teaching is error, then you're also going to mislead a whole lot of people. And so it's a it's a very important thing to consider. So the man of God comes and says to Saul here in verse number 10 and then over in 11, he said, what have you done? And Saul goes on to explain, I saw that the people were running away from me, so I decided to act like you. Interesting, though. Interesting. Very, very interesting. In the sense that Saul was walking by sight. You see? By sight. If what you see is going to always determine what you do... Then the adversary is going to do everything he can to produce fear in your life. And fear is not something we receive from God. The Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of love, power, and that of a sound mind. And when we're afraid, we make hasty decisions. Let somebody lose their job and they're, they're, you know, confronted with a lot of bills they got to take care of and they're afraid about how they're going to handle this. Fear will put, will push you into positions that later on you may wish you had avoided. In fact, it'll put you in position sometime where you'll be twisted and, and contorted in all these different ways. And then you'll never even be able to recover from some bad decisions that, that you've made. And Saul, because the people were running from him. See, that's that's the problem. He's a king and he expects people to stand by him, but because they were turning away from him, he thought if I did this, these folks would love me more. But that's not the key. The scripture is very plain that if we do what God tells us to do, God touches the hearts of the people to believe and stand in faith also. So as a Christian, sometimes you have to stand alone, but you don't want to do like Saul. Stand alone because you're standing in fear. You want to stand alone because you're standing in faith. Because you're trusting God and believing. Looking into the latter portion of 1 Samuel 13, then the Philistines, of course, were taking advantage of the Israelites. In verse 17, the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. That means they, they were coming and taking advantage of the Israelites. And the Philistines were crafty enough to understand exactly how to keep the Israelites from being able to resist them. They knew what they needed to do to keep a people subjugated so that they could not fight back. On one of our trips here, my wife was telling me, she said, if all of our travels around the world have taught me anything, it's taught me that the way a government can keep a people subjugated is by keeping them from ever being armed, think about that. see if all the weapons are owned by the folks in government, then quite naturally then the people don 't have the ability to look after themselves now don 't misunderstand me; this is not a message on why well, we need to raise a new militia or something like that I'm trying to get to a point here which 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 you 'll see here here pretty soon, but the the Philistines understood. That if you're going to keep Israel in a place of servitude, number one, you've got to get rid of all of those that are able to make weapons. The smiths. The blacksmiths. Now think about this. 50 years ago, probably not even that long ago, most, most small towns had some kind of a smith. See? And they did all kinds of labors, creating all kinds of things, whether it was horseshoes for horses or whether they, you know, had something they were putting together for other types of, uh, farming equipment. But the average town had those. But through the processes of time, a lot of these businesses kind of lose out. There, there are a few towns around here where you can still find a good welder that, that, uh, is, is profitable and, and, uh, very industrious in what, what they do. But the Philistines understood we have to remove the ones That are able to make the weapons, get rid of the people that have the ability to create things. Then the second thing is get rid of the resources that produce all of these weapons. So the Philistines were smart. Let's get rid of the blacksmiths and then let's make sure that they don't have anything that they can use to create any kind of weapons to stand up against us. And that means, of course, that whenever there is a tool that needs to be made or sharpened, they've got to come to us. The Philistines, they have to come to us. So the Philistines empowered themselves by spoiling their adversaries. And the children of Israel were mentally and physically defeated. They were depressed and there was nothing they could do because they didn't have the ingenuity to say, let's rise up and let's try to resist these folks. And the Philistines knew that. And that is one of the basic teachings of this right here. So when you go around the world, there are a lot of countries where they do not want their people to be armed. But then you look at a nation like ours, from a natural standpoint, there are very few countries that would want to invade America simply because there are a whole lot of folks out here in these little small towns that have an arsenal and an armory that's greater than some small countries. Yeah. I had one lady in the church, her husband, had had talking to me about weapons one time. He said, Pastor... He said, I've got a whole lot of stuff in my house. I said, well, what do you have? He said, well, let's suppose somebody's breaking in the house. He said, I, he said, I've got enough right there in the bedroom to get me to the kitchen. And he said, if I get to the kitchen, he said, I've got enough in the kitchen to get me downstairs in the basement. And he said, if I get down in the basement, he said, God help anybody that's at the top of the stairs when I come up. That's what he told me. That's what he told me. Well. All I'm saying is, as long as you can keep a people without any kind of means of defense, you can destroy them. Now, from the natural perspective, then Paul says in Ephesians that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So in the latter days, today, we're not fighting with people physically as Christians. In this culture today, what we're having to resist are ideals, and we're having to resist beliefs, and we've got to stand opposed to them. And the scripture says that this book right here is our sword. Now think about that. This book here is the sword and is your only true means of defense, and the world wants to control how you use this sword. They want to control what you believe about it. They want to control how it is that you you teach, how it is that you preach. That's why over on the West Coast here not too long ago, they, they wanted to pass that law that said in the churches, the Christians would not be able to sell any material that would lead to the change in the orientation of anybody's when, when it comes to their gender. They 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 were gonna pass the law that said the preachers can't preach against same sex so, and so on and so forth, but that was finally defeated as the Christians stood up in California against that. But the world understands that if we're gonna control the nation, you gotta control what people believe. And that is why they start as early as possible with our little ones. Now we praise the Lord for all of our Christian teachers. In the public school and we pray for them all the time because they're having to wrestle with all of these strange and odd ideas that people have to deal with as well as in other business arenas and and vocations in this world. But we, we want to ensure that we know that it's a task for a church to take people for basically a couple hours a week. And try to get the word of God in them strong enough so that they can combat what they're facing in the culture every single day. The average church is not able to do that. Our kids deal with secularism all day long and then they deal with it on television. Adults deal with it all day long on the job. Then they have to deal with it on television and in the media And we're constantly having to renew our minds with the word of God. And by this, we're taking God's word and we are allowing God's word to speak to us. And this book, since it is a sword, we do not go to the world to get their permission to sharpen it or to use it. But the world will say something like this. Well, that verse was for 50 years ago or 200 years ago, but we don't. That verse isn't for this generation. That's what they'll say. What what they're saying is. We, we, we don't want you using that blade in this generation. If, if you get too excited about God and you believe in the anointing and the power of the Holy Ghost, then there'll be people who say, you, you just really need to calm down because religion just doesn't give that much excitement now. You shouldn't be so, so, so pumped about serving God. And somebody else will come along and say to you, well, 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 look, if, if you're going to serve God, you don't have to be a fanatic about this. Thank goodness, go, going. I go to church, I go to church at Easter, I go to church at Christmas time, and every now and then grandma comes by, and I go with her, but we, we don't have to do this thing every week now. See What's wrong with you folks? That, that's the key. And that, that's a culture that is saying to you, they're unhappy with how you're resisting that culture. And this world wants to take the Bible out of your hands. Now I know they want to do that because we see over and over again we have one new Bible every year that has to come out. It's always a continuation of trying to change the the verses or the words to create sentences that don't offend anybody. Now, I was I was writing a review here recently for the the fourth edition of the the, the latest um what is it? The Oxford Study Bible. And so I was reading through some of the notes they had on that. And they had kind of changed a lot of stuff in Romans chapter one to make it seem like, well, you know, the only reason Paul uses language to, to promote what seems to be traditional uh, male, female marriages, because more than likely in his time, first century Rome, he probably never knew any homosexuals. That was that was their belief. And, uh, I, I looked at those notes in that Bible and I thought, oh, my Lord, there are going to be millions of people that read this and believe these, these scholars. And they're going to get up there and going to preach this from the pulpit. And we're going to have more and more people that are going to believe this. And what that means is we'll have blades that have been put out by the Philistines that remove from the believer This, this cutting edge message that the scripture actually does provide for us. A good friend of mine was telling me just last week in their church in Canada, the pastor and his wife had been there 15 years. Think about this. 15 years. They they didn't have any kids. However, they, they were strong on the family and biblical marriage. And after 15 years, it got back to headquarters in their denomination that they did not promote the Canadian legal uh, statute, which says you can't use any kind of language or read any verses in from the Bible that are offensive to people who are in same-sex unions or have parents in same-sex unions. So after 15 years, they removed him from... The church, and they said he's got to go back to school for reconditioning. Think about that. That means we're we're taking him out of the pulpit to put him back in school to get his thinking in line with the denominational frame of thought. Well, that was the, 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 the Presbyterian church up there in Canada. But that's directly connected with the Presbyterian Church of America here, who is putting the pressure on that group there. So I'm saying that that the reason we're losing battles in our culture over and over and over again is very simply because we've allowed the Philistines to, to take the Smiths out of the church. We've gotten rid of the true preachers. We've gotten rid of our true believers. Fathers have abdicated their roles and responsibilities. Mothers have become quiet when it comes to these things. And on account of that, everybody's kind of shivering in the dark, saying, I know these things that are going on is wrong. But what can we do to stop it? Well, you can pray. You can believe God. When you talk with your family, you can lovingly and tactfully explain to them what the scripture says. If somebody can quote to you a a statute from the Supreme Court, you can quote to them something the Bible says. If a friend can tell you something they learned from a doctor on television, you can quote to them something Paul says. Everybody has a basis of authority. And if you allow the scripture to be your main basis of authority, then you always have something to fall back on that is much older than what we have that is currently put out in this uh, in this nation. So this is why, as believers, we stand against what the adversary is doing. Uh, I, I know how this operates. I, I see it. You know, here's somebody runs a grocery store or a barber shop or something in a small town, and he or she may hold uh, beliefs that are out of step with what uh, some of the customers and people like that may may hold. And so, of course, you don't want to say anything that's going to start any kind of argument or create any kind of problems. And that's going to affect your business. And then the bottom line, and that's going to affect how you take care of your family. And so pretty soon what ends up happening is we we muzzle ourselves. But, folks, I'm telling you, the church, the church in the heartland is one of the last places where the truth of the gospel can truly, truly be proclaimed without people being ashamed of what they believe. But in the last 30 years you've seen more and more of the invasion in the church where headquarters is sending preachers who don't believe in the virgin birth, who don't believe in Jesus' sinless life, who do not believe in Jesus' atoning death on the cross or his resurrection or his ascension. And they're sending preachers like that into the small towns and into some uh, spe- specifically, uh, conservative churches in the big cities in order to little by little begin to change what people are believing. And if you listen week after week to someone saying something like this, well, you know, the Bible is filled with a few myths and legends too. If you hear that for a couple of years, Sunday after Sunday, eventually, what goes in is going to come out. They sow that into your heart. It's going to come out through a harvest. And pretty soon you'll be you'll be saying also, well, you know, I mean, really, do you, do you really think a, a whale swallowed Jonah? I mean, they had to have made that up. See, that that's what happens over a period of time. You're saying, well, pastor, do you believe the Bible when it says a whale swallowed Jonah? If the Bible said Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd be preaching that. That's all it is. See this. The, the, the scripture is about trusting God by faith. When when someone asks you for prayer, you lay hands on them and pray. You pray not on the basis of what you see as an affliction in somebody's body. You pray on the basis of what God's word has said and you believe that God can make them whole. When you're witnessing to someone who's a sinner, you don't look at how many sins they've committed and say there's no way on the earth God can save somebody like you. You explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to them knowing that the same blood that saved you and brought forgiveness to you will bring it to them also. That's the way this works. And folks, if we lose our gospel, we don't have anything else. We don't have anything else. If we lose our gospel. So the people in Israel... They stayed in bondage so long as they were afraid to fight until God finally raised up a deliverer. To imagine a world where there'd be no blacksmith or even a world where there's no cobbler or a world where there's nobody to... Take, take care of the meat or something like that, or a world where you don't have somebody that knows how to handle a spear or sword or shield. By getting rid of that smith, they got rid of the ability for people to defend themselves. I don't like to be pessimistic when it comes to some of this, but when I look at more and more the, the direction that our nation is heading in. I can't help but wonder if one day a preacher is going to be in jail because they preach the gospel in this country. See? I, I just wonder if if one day out here, if there'd be a little kid that wore a t-shirt that said, I love Jesus on it and be sent home from school or suspended. See? And primarily, that is because we have people in positions of power that would rather go with the tide rather than have to stand up for what is right. See, It's a whole lot easier to just be a little bit of refuse floating down the stream, you know, just being carried about with all, all of the the, the river and everything like that. It's totally different if you're going to be a salmon. And you're going to try to swim upstream to get back to the place where you were spawned. And we should always be making our way back to Calvary. Back to a place of sacrifice, back to that place where Christ died for us and where any commitment we made to him, we, we understand that he has not asked us to do anything that he himself has not already done. He says, take up that cross and follow me. He's saying, you're not doing anything I haven't done. I have not asked you to sacrifice anything that I have not already sacrificed. So to put God first is the most important thing that we as Christians can do. Amen. 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 Let's let's hold fast and hold firm to the faith. Let's not be discouraged by what we hear or what we see. And let's keep one another encouraged throughout the week and throughout the month when we come in contact with each other. Because in these last days, finding people of like faith or similar faith is getting harder and harder to find those for me as a pastor. For me to get around other preachers, it's hard to find preachers that want to talk about God. Talk about preachers. I get in a room with with ministers. Uh, many of them want to tell vulgar jokes. See, they, they they want to gossip about what's going on in different churches and tell you every bad thing that so and so is doing in the church and all that. I have no stories like that. I don't engage in any of that. Typically, I get up and walk out. When that stuff is going on, because when when I'm with ministers and we we, we should be talking about the things of God, we've got the cure for the ills of this community, for the county, folks. And the answer is Christ. Not arguing about whether or not the board is going to let us paint the Sunday school room a lime green. See, splitting the church over something like that. Praise God. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Oh God, how wonderful it is to be able to love you and to know you We're happy. We were able to spend a little bit of time tonight in fellowship, not only around the word, but also in this good food that we had. Lord, we pray that you be with each one of us until we gather again. And we are happy that you opened each of our eyes today. Help us to continue to grow in grace as well as in knowledge. And we do all of this. For the lion of Judah that became the lamb of God, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen. Praise the name of the Lord.